take out your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. And we will get going. If you need encouragement and getting fired up and thinking about the future, you came to the right service. This passage is incredible. When you first read through it, you're going to go, eh, it's all right. When we get done with this thing, you're going to be so excited about where you're headed and so excited about what God has planned for you. I can tell you that for sure. Um, if you look at the top of your sheet, you'll notice that we are in part 23 of our first Corinthians series entitled practical faithfulness. And, uh, I entitled the message faithful to the impossible. By the time we get done with today, we will have finished chapter 15. That leaves us only one chapter left in the entire book of first Corinthians. So we've gone through it line by line. That's pretty exciting. I just want to start with a couple quick thoughts. We're going to go to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, and then we'll roll from there. Uh, just a quick show of hands, uh, honesty, kind of digging deep here in your own soul. How many of you are honestly sick and tired of this life, being frustrated, being limited, being torn down? Raise your hand. All right, there's a lot of you. Okay, this message is for you. Uh, we look at our lives and our bodies, and they're breaking down, and we have gone from... Uh, man, I used to have chubby cheeks. Now I just have sloshy cheeks and, you know, and I, you know, and I used to, I, you know, I, it seems like I used to have so much energy and now it just feels like I'm, I'm tore up and my body's breaking down and now I can't even walk where I want to walk and do what I want to do. And, and, and we, we tend to lose the luster of this life when things get more and more difficult. And for some of us through the recession and everything and just the, the pressures of life, are really crushing on our spirit. The fill in the blank is for you. The fill in the blank says this, we will not always be like this. We will not always be like this. What you're going to find is even though life is difficult, and just because we have scripture doesn't make everything happy all the time, just know this, for a believer, for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus Christ, the future is not black. It's not hopeless. As a matter of fact, your entire existence is based on the premise that the best hasn't even hit yet. And not only that, but where we are headed, your mind hasn't even conceived of ideas. Your imagination cannot even wrap around what God has for us. And as a matter of fact, this is only a dry run. We're able to launch into eternity with brilliance. And so we're going to dive into this. I just don't want you to ever give up. I want you to remain faithful because all that you are doing matters. Jesus is watching every bit of it. He knows every struggle. He knows all the reasons why you're doing what you do. He knows why you're not doing more for him. I get that. Remember, we always play that game. We always got to do more, got to do more, got to, you know what? Sometimes we got to do less. Sometimes we need to cut some things out. Sometimes we need to say, Jesus, what do you want? And not just run around like a chicken with our heads cut off saying, I'm doing stuff for you. God, I'm, aren't you proud? Aren't you proud? And he said, you know what? I called you to rest today. I said, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, I need you to mellow out. I need you to relax. And so for a lot of us, we need a little bit of a perspective shift. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 35, in the Bibles that were under your seats there, that's page 961, 961. I'm going to read through this through the end of the chapter. Let's take a look at what God has for us. Paul is continuing on speaking to this church in Greece in a city by the name of Corinth, and he said this, but someone will ask, 
how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you have sow and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for guiding us in like little chickens underneath your wing, Lord, that we would all gather together, hear your word, be saturated by truth, have our minds renewed, and we would take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, that, Lord, here we would begin to soak in what reality is, that, Lord, that we would be able to have a bright future, that we'd begin to see that you have designed things for us and gifted us in certain ways and drawn us along. Lord, there are many of us that are weak and tired and beat up, and what we need is refreshment to know, Lord, the end of the story, which is merely, Lord, the beginning of our story. And so would you encourage us today with your words? Would you bring them alive to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's zoom back to verse 35. Let's dive into this. As I said, when you read through it at first, you kind of go, eh, I don't know. It's kind of a lot of perishable, non-perishable. It's kind of a lot of, you know, that kind of mortality stuff, whatever. All right. Listen to this. This is incredible as you break it down. It starts out with this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Paul knows who this someone is. He doesn't name them by name. 
Why? Because he's about to blow them out of the water. So he has somebody in mind. He has a group in mind who's asking this question. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, we look at that and we go, man, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, is this whole raised from the dead thing, is that legit? I mean, is there really this afterlife? And if there's an afterlife, how exactly are we going to interact with that? I mean, I have enough trouble getting through this life. I'm not sure I want eternity. I don't want to keep going. I'm tired. And so we have these questions. Look at Paul's response. You foolish person. You're like, oh, thanks, man. All I had was a question. You blew me out of the water. Because if you want to translate that from Greek, I think it means stupid. (laughs) Now, why is he so harsh? I mean, why, why, why is he saying it like that? Because they're not asking a question for information. They're attacking. You cannot see it in the nuance, but the way that it's designed out They are asking a question to try to trap him. The Greek mindset is there is no afterlife the way we're thinking about it. This body stuff is garbage. It's got no place in the afterlife. It's more of a disembodied spirit, kind of an orb thing. You're going to be free to be light or whatever you are, but you're not going to take this with you. The Hebrew mindset of Old Testament was... He's just going to reconstruct the stuff, and we're going in with this stuff. Paul said, I disagree with both of those. That is not at all how it's going to happen. I'm going to tell you about it, but you don't believe it, and so you keep attacking me. You keep saying, that's impossible, that's impossible, that's impossible. I get it. The whole idea that the incarnation occurred, that we're celebrating Christmas, that God became flesh and dwelt among us is impossible. The very idea that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins is impossible. The very idea that Jesus rose from the dead is impossible. But what we have learned is that the possible is impossible. Excuse me, that uh, didn't make sense at all. That was stupid. I agree. I don't, I don't get amen, but I do get that. Uh, praise the Lord. That was awesome. But the impossible is possible with God. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> it's, 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 this job is ridiculous. The very idea, we learned last week that, it, that, that Paul said, man, if, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, this whole thing is bogus. But he did raise from the dead. It's not myth. It is fact. It's not fable. It's true. And it's right. And it's reality. And therefore, we need to get our minds into things that are impossible to be able to understand where we're headed. And so sure enough, he goes on. He said, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We look at that and we go, "Ooh, that's deep. Yeah. Okay. No, it's not. They live in an agricultural society. They know what they're talking about when they sow. We're like, what do you mean sow? Like, like when you invest? No, dude. I mean when you throw seeds. I mean like you're doing all the time. Back then, this was not deep. This was very straightforward. He's not trying to be cryptic. He's just trying to be straightforward going, listen, let me give you a simple analogy that you do all the time. You know how you have patches in your lawn where the grass dies. You take out the garbage and then you sow little seeds in there, right? It's not going to work until the little seed breaks down and starts germinating. Pretty straightforward right now. Is there something deeper underneath that 
about how it relates to our lives, yes, but the concept is simple. Jesus said something just like this. Let's throw that first scripture on the screen. I got the first couple scriptures here for you to read along with me, but not all of them. John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, that's deep. Practical, yes. Jesus just said, if I still remain the Son of God and I do not die for the sins of the world, how exactly does that benefit you? If I remain who I am, you are not going to have eternal life. I came to die. The very purpose of me being here was that I would be broken down that you might thrive and live. It's the very point of the cross. Now, we can put all kinds of applications on this, right? That's not the sermon for today. But if you wanted to look at that and say, man, if I live for myself, if all I am is selfish and I go through life and just do what I want to do and it's all about me, what is that going to do for the kingdom of God? Nothing. But if I began to give my life away, if I began to serve, if I began to use the gifts for the kingdom, what an incredible harvest we can have, right? That's another sermon. And we go on verse 37 and what you sow is not the body that is to be You're not putting little seeds in the ground to grow more seeds When you put a little tiny seed in the ground out pops a plant that looks like a seed. That's ridiculous What you put in the ground actually comes out looking totally different, right? This isn't rocket science. We all track it on this one what you put in the ground actually looks dramatically different than what comes up out of the soil. And the very purpose is that it breaks down. It's merely a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. You know, I was reading through a commentary and they brought up an analogy that for me being Mr. Non-Nature, I, I have no idea about nature. I don't even notice that it's there, right? My wife always reminds us we have plants. I didn't even know that. Apparently we have plants all around our house. I don't see that stuff, but there's one analogy that has always kind of amazed me about nature. And maybe it's because I grew up in El Dorado Hills, right? Which is like Oak Central. Uh, is the idea of an acorn becoming an oak. I think that is so awesome. And partly I love it because acorns have little hats. <laughs> I think, I think it's awesome that a little nut has its own little hat. And he's very formal. He's, he's very appropriate. And I, and I don't know how those little suckers get into the ground and start growing this enormous tree. I don't know anyone that's planting oak trees. And it's almost like the little nut has to like scrape himself into the ground. I don't know how that works. And it rains on him. All of a sudden, it's this massive, immovable behemoth of a tree. And it came from that little baby acorn. And you go, what? That's crazy. In the same way, right? You, you, there's a seed, but what comes from it is so vastly more powerful. In the same way, our bodies are like the seeds. What we will become in Jesus Christ as we are glorified and what we will have to be built for eternity is fascinating. That's kind of what we're studying today. But God gives it a body, verse 38, as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. What does that mean? Well, let me, let me drop a, a little bomb on you for a second. 
Bodily resurrection does not mean reconstruction. Let me say it again. Bodily resurrection, which Christianity teaches, that we will have bodies in the life to come. We, it, the Bible does not teach disembodied spirits, does not teach orb, floating stuff, light things. No, that's not it. We will have a body. We will engage with our world in a similar fashion to how we engage with our world now. But what's intriguing is that for some people, they try to picture how is God going to put the pieces back together? Bodily resurrection does not mean reconstruction. And you go, well, how does that practically affect me? I'm going to do a memorial service after the second service today. We have asked Pastor Lance, right, after at 1 o'clock today, if you guys are interested in hanging out and having questions answered and stuff like that, if you want to come hang with me, we got questions here, you can come spend time. The minute I get done with that, I'm bailing out to West Sac and I'm doing a memorial service for a saint that used to go here to church, and I'm doing the memorial service for them. I get asked a lot of questions, both in the Ask Pastor Lance, online email stuff. What happens when we die? Is it all right to do cremation? Right? And behind the question of cremation, and by the way, I have opted for cremation. I'm not looking for an early entry. I'm just saying, <laughs> when it's time... When it's time, I, I plan on being cremated. And I get a lot of questions, is cremation okay? And really, you push the question back, and you go, well, why wouldn't it be? And they're like, well, doesn't God need all the parts? <laughs> at least if you die and put them in a box, then he has. He could just, it's some assembly required, right? But they're all there, and he doesn't have to go looking for them. All right. Here's the point. The answer to that is no, it does not matter whatsoever, and here's why. Biblically, it says, and the sea will give up the dead that is in it. I don't know if you know anything about decomposition, about a body within water, but it's talking about all the dead that have died in the sea. I'm pretty sure little fishy has some of so-and-so, little fishy has some of so-and-so. <laughs> Trust me, he doesn't need the parts. It is not reconstruction. It is glorification. There's a whole different idea that if God fashioned together Adam's body from the dirt, he will too fashion our bodies. We will be similar, but not same. Now, it moves forward. He said, for not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, verse 39, another for animals, another for fish, another for uh, birds. What does that mean? It means suitability, creativity, and diversity. God creates what is suitable for the purpose. Let's say that all those things had the same. Let's say God only created flesh stuff. To me, that's just creepy. I don't want flesh fish. Ew, right? I don't want bird like going, God, he looks like me. That's just gross. You're like, put some pants on, man. Don't be flying over me like that. But if you're going to have a bird, you got feathers, right? It's creativity. Not only that, but if you're going to have something flying through the sky, you need it to have more lightweight bones. It's built suitable for its purpose. And not only that, but there is massive creativity. How does this imp impact us for the future? When you are in eternity, you will have a body that works well in that environment. It's built accordingly. And they don't all look the same. We need to understand that there is massive creativity that God has, massive diversity, to where we will still be individualized, and what you will find is that we will be recognized. Intriguing pieces. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. He's not talking about 
angelic stuff. He's talking about heavens in the sense of atmosphere, right? The Bible talks about heavens, anything that's in our sky and out. So sky, atmosphere, outer space, universe. Those are the heavens. That's what he's talking about. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, sun, moon, stars. The glory of the earthly, waterfalls, mountains are of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. What is glory? Glory is that which makes you amazing. Glory is that mark that is that is you that is beautiful that is stunning that is magnificent It's the thing within something that makes you go wow Whether it's its design what whatever You know we look up at the sky and we go but stars just look like twinkly white things I mean they're all the same right no not if you know astronomy Astronomy, you go out and you look and you notice that certain planets have different hues of color, different stars. One went supernova at this time. One went supernova at that time. These are echoing out in this way. This one tends to have this coloring. And then you begin to look at planets and this one has a ring around it. And this one, even though they all look to the untrained naked eye, they all look the same. They are just not. How incredibly cool is it that God has designed a world? That however long we've been here, I don't want to get into an argument, young earth, older, stuff like that. If you're old earth, this even makes my point even more. I'm a young earth guy, right? Let's say we've been on this planet for 10,000 years. You guys want to go longer than that? Whatever. Here's the point. How cool is it that God designed a place where we're still finding stuff? Really? I mean, we've been going all over the place, exploring everything, and we're still finding. There are places in the ocean we have not even gone yet. There are places in outer space, the majority of it, we have yet to go. God built a cap in there that it's revealed little by little. Why? Exploration, because it's fun. That's it. Even the places that we know. Every once in a while on Yahoo homepage, bloop, brand new salamander found. The dude's been there for how long? He's always there. But God just capped it over and said a brand new species. Check that out. Did you see that? Look at that. I'm so infinitely creative. Here's what I need you to know about heaven. It will be like that. Infinite, eternal, wow. It's a, I can, I'm still finding stuff. We've been here for like 10,000 years and we're still going, no way. Do you see that? That's wild. Constantly. We always think that maybe once we get into heaven, we're going to know everything. No, you won't. You're not going to be God. There's still this idea of conquest and adventure and excitement and, wow, I didn't even see that before and I'm learning this and I know this about God. And, and when we see him, it says that we will know him. But know this, even though you're there 10,000 years, there's still ways that you look and you go, you're more beautiful than I ever imagined. You're more stunning than I ever could have dreamed. And every day I learn more and more about you. Incredible. Incredible says this verse 42 so is it with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable it is the decay of this life that is frustrating it is the entropy of our existence the breakdown the chaos the constant going away that makes us hurt 
our relationships break down, our bodies break down, all these things, and we just get so frustrated because we don't want it to go like that. Our spirits are built for eternity, and we so badly want to hang on to everything. We say, if I love you, I want to love you forever, and yet we don't get a chance to do that. Everything seems to be slipping away, and that is this life. That is not the next. The next has a permanence to it. The next has a longevity to it that we do not have here. And it's this decay. I mean, imagine this. First of all, I don't like running. I know a lot of you maybe are runners and you enjoy that as an exercise. I run when I'm chased. I run when I'm hungry and there's food. There's very few reasons why I run. I recently started running. Running is just horribly boring. And most of the reason why I don't like running is you get tired. I don't know if you knew that. So you get tired, but how now it's interesting because there are some friends of mine that are in wheelchairs. They don't get a chance to run and they look and they go, that'd be so much fun to run. And I don't, I just take it for granted, but it's because of that gravity pulling me down. It's the tiredness. It's the weight. How amazing would it be to be able to run and just enjoy without having the exhaustion? See what we have here is perishable. It breaks down, but then It will be imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Our sin is embarrassing. It is shaming. You know how I always say stuff for shock value, right? It's just kind of my kind of style of humor, right? So in my premarital counseling class, when we're all gathered together and everybody's kind of nervous and everything, and one of the weeks I always go up and I go, hey, why is everybody clothed? How come nobody came naked today? Right? And everyone's just like, uh, awkward, right? They don't know what to do with that. And I said, and I go, no, 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 I appreciate it. That you, that you didn't. But what I'm saying is, why are, you, why are you wearing so much clothes? And people I don't understand. You say, well, listen, check this out. It says in the beginning, when Adam and Eve were together and there was no sin, they were naked and they felt no shame. Why are we wearing clothes? Because we're scared of each other. That's why. You're not safe. So we cover up. We spend all our time covering things because we're afraid that you're going to say something about what we're already insecure about. And so we shield. You think we don't do that emotionally? You think that we're not putting on so many masks and so many facades and so many walls. Why? Because you're not safe. You're going to hurt me. I don't want you to say anything about my imperfections. So I cover and I cover and I cover. This body, imagine in heaven when there's not that fear. Imagine this, that you engage with other people and you can be totally you without fear of rejection. And they will be totally them and you'll be able to enjoy them for who they are. There's no more games. There's no more. Well, I don't know. You're mean to me and you're there's no more of that. And all our walls fall down and we actually engage with each other in honesty. That's pretty awesome. Without being afraid. It says it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We are so fragile and so easily tempted, but that will not always be the case. It is sown a natural body, temporary, limited, but it is raised a spiritual body, free and powerful. It says if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. What does that mean? It means the presence of one indicates the presence of another. If there's really an afterlife, guess what? You need a body for it. If we got this one for this one, why shouldn't we have that one for that one? It only makes sense. It's practical. Then it starts talking about Adam versus Jesus, verse 45. Thus it is written, Genesis 2, 7, the first man, Adam, became a living being. You all remember that story? With God's own bare hands, shapes together dirt, dust, forms it into the shape of a man, and then does what to bring him alive? 
he breathes into him. The very breath of God, and he ignites and becomes a human being. As amazing as that is, he is still merely made of dust. As fascinating as it is for the Spirit of God to dwell within man and to animate him, he is still limited and he is still temporal. But it says the second became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What does that mean? It means as much as Adam became alive, Jesus gave life. As much as Adam became an animate being, so Jesus imparts eternality to all of us, right? Isn't that incredible? Then it says, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. There is a process of preparation that God is amping us up. We're going through a dry run first to engage with him, to understand him, to know him. And then we begin to live with him rightly. It says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Jesus said, I am the manna that's come from heaven. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that has come down. I was with the Father, and now I'm here with you. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and it became flesh and dwelt among us. That's where Jesus came from. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are of dust, human beings. As is the man of heaven, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven, believers. It says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, looking and acting like humans, we shall also bear the image, look and act like the man of heaven, the risen Christ. Hmm. What did Jesus do? Jesus came down took on humanity, became flesh, dwelt among us, and did something that rocked all of creation, all of nature and supernature. He died on the cross that we might be free. We know that story. A couple weeks ago, we engaged with the rawness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to know what it is to be forgiven, to be saved. We talked about the incredible power of Jesus Christ, not only dying on the cross, but raising on the third day. We talked about the power of the resurrection. But what impact does that have upon us? We are being made like him. Throw this scripture up on the screen if you could. Romans eight twenty nine. for those whom he foreknew, they're talking about us, believers, Christians, for those of us whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, made into the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If Jesus raised to life, so he will bring many of us along with him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no such thing as getting saved and not being glorified. It's all part of the same process. If you are saved today, you will be glorified, period. Why? Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He can get his job done. You will be with him. And you're going to be all right. Philippians 3.21 says this. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will 
transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That incredible, massive power of Jesus will make us like him. What does that mean? Let's talk about what Jesus was like. I'm not talking about before the manger. I'm talking about after his risen. He came back and a bunch of people interacted with him. So what was he like? First of all, he was recognizable, kind of. Why? Let me tell you a couple of stories. When Jesus shows up in a locked room, first of all, whoa, hey, what are you doing here? That's crazy. The door's locked. I can't believe you got in here. We now know he can teleport. That's pretty awesome. Right? I mean, goes around. You know, right? Pokes Andrew, goes over, you know. You know, probably didn't do that. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, uh, it's a good thing I'm not Jesus, you guys. I mean, for a million reasons, that's one of them. <clears throat> they recognize him. The Lord's here, right? I mean, he was so recognizable that even from a distance, they were out in a fishing boat. You remember this? He's out on the beach. He's cooking up something. John looks across the water and goes, it's the Lord. Peter's like, you're right, dives in the water and goes and hangs out with him. But yet, when Mary, who loved him so desperately, sees him on the day that he is risen, she thinks he's the what? The gardener. She's like, where'd you put the body of Christ? He's like, Mary, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, why are you holding a hoe, right? And he's like, well, I don't know. It's the idea that she didn't recognize him fully. And he's like, Mary, you know me. She's like, yes. Why was he not recognizable completely on the road to Emmaus? Disciples are walking. Jesus comes walking alongside him. And he goes, what are you guys talking about? Like, we're talking about Jesus. He's like, that's ironic. And as they're walking along, he starts talking to him a little bit about it. And then he breaks bread in front of him. And they're like, hey, wait a second. You're and he's gone. He's recognizable, kind of. Let's talk about how recognizable we will be. Because we always look and we go, well, I, I, you know, even though I don't necessarily like my body, I don't necessarily like my looks, I, I like me. And I don't want to not be me. I mean, that, does, that feels weird. Listen, you're still going to be you, but what's intriguing is that you'll be recognizable, kind of. Picture it like this. Have you ever uh, known somebody in childhood and then you meet them as an adult and you go, oh my gosh, that's you. Whoa, I can't believe I would have walked right by you if I didn't know who you were. That's what I'm talking about. As much as a baby who looking in that little cradle, they still look, you look at the baby pictures and you go, okay, I can see it. But it's not exact. The same thing where you see somebody that maybe loses a bunch of weight and you just go, oh, my gosh, you know, and you and you, if I didn't look into your eyes, it's almost like I couldn't even recognize you. But they are recognizable. If somebody is in in the hospital, let's say your spouse is in the hospital wrapped like a mummy and all you can see is their eyes. You still know it's them. You know, it's them. But understand, it's not like we're completely unrecognizable. We're individual. Jesus, when he was here, everyone kind of goes, well, he's either the exact same or he's some floating ghost because everybody, you know, that hovering kind of thing, right? And he goes, no, I'm not a ghost. Look, here, you can touch me, right? Look, oh, look, Peter, when I slap you, it hurts. What? Right? Instead, he's going, you can touch my hands. You can touch my side. I'm real. I mean, yeah, I can go through walls and doors and teleport and all that crazy stuff, but understand, it's still me. You can engage with me and you go, what do you mean he still had his scars? You mean I still have to keep that same stupid tattoo I got in the Navy? What? I mean, like for eternity? What? That was terrible artwork. I can't even believe it's on my arm, right? I mean, that's not what we're carrying forward. He kept his scars because they matter. Why? Because it says that when he returns, the world will look upon the one they pierce and they'll be horrified at what they've done. His marks mean something. So he's going to keep the one on his side. He's going to keep the one in his hands. 
and he's going to show this is what I did for you. It's an act of love. Why would he get rid of that? Right? Pick it up in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we need to be born again. You don't get to go in without being transformed. And you go, well, are we all going to be transformed? This is the sad part of the sermon. The answer to it is yes. Why? We will have to be transformed to live in heaven and we'll have to be transformed to eternally be in the lake of fire. Human bodies can't deal with that type of burning without incineration. But the Bible says that there will be eternal torment. Therefore, that body will be transformed as well. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Whenever it says sleep, he's talking about death, right? We're not all going to die. What about the people that are still living when Jesus comes back? Because there's going to be some of us, and if Jesus comes soon, it might be all of us. But if he decides to tarry, maybe a few of us or maybe our great-grandkids, that they would be alive when, when Jesus returns. What about them? This is not the first time Jesus has, uh, Paul has talked about this. I know that Casey cited some of this for you before. Let's, let's read it again. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Let's throw this one on the board. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So many people worry and they go, but so-and-so passed away already. Just know this, they're ahead of you in line. That's it. They get to see Jesus faster. That's the only negative for you. For them, they're awesome. You're the one that has a problem, right? You're the one that's still around. You're the one that's still in frustration. They're actually doing great. Every time I do a funeral, I always remind everybody that that person is a believer. I'm worried about you guys. I'm not worried about them. They're doing better than everyone here, right? They're doing excellent. And it says that we will all be changed, going back to verse 52, in a moment. That word is a tomos in Greek. It means the smallest amount of time. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, rapid movement, an eye dart, an eye flash, even the twinkling that happens in there, in an instant we will be changed at the last trumpet, signaling the significant change. For the trumpet will sound, indicating the presence of a king, and the dead will be raised imperishable, built for eternity. And we shall be chained, equipped for a new existence. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Quick sign to your vulnerability, right? I'm, I'm very honest with you guys. I always have been. Um, I'm afraid to die. Uh, quick show of hands, those of you that uh, are like me in this. Uh, show of hands, how many are afraid to die? Raise your hand. Okay, I got it. Uh, here's why I'm afraid to die. I've never done it before. I'm actually not good at it. I haven't practiced it. 
um, and I don't know what it's like. And so that makes me nervous. There's a lot of things in this world that make me nervous. Um, we learned last week that Pastor Eric is afraid of roller coasters. Should he be? No. Is he? Yes. Um, and so the whole idea of dying is it's just not something I'm familiar with. And so it makes me nervous. I also don't like the idea of being apart from anyone. I don't like the idea of my girls growing up without a dad. That really bothers me. So I'm afraid to die for a variety of reasons. Now, should I be? Of course not. I mean, we know how it's all going to go. And it's honestly, once we step out of here, it's out of time. Next thing we know, boom, everybody's there. We're all good. Everything rolls. And we're so thankful. Um, But I'm afraid to die because I'm unfamiliar with it. I do have a friend that has died and came back. And they're not afraid to die because they've already done it once. They get it. And they look and they go, so bring it. It's way better than here. I'll just tell you that. So... But just know that we, we look at it and we say, well, Lance, you shouldn't be afraid to die. A lot of that is personality. A lot of it is personality on whether or not you're afraid to die or not. And you go, but death, you know, it's, it's only, Paul said to die is gain, right? You know, so why are you, hold up. Do you remember the time when Paul had a buddy named Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus helped him in the ministry. Then he got sick. Paul's writing back to the team and saying, you know what? I was afraid he was going to die. As a matter of fact, he was ill to the point of death, but God spared me sorrow upon sorrow by allowing him to live that I would give him back to you and be less anxious. Why? Because we cry when we lose someone. Why? Because we're not good at separation. That's it. Have you ever sat in an airport and watched people get on a plane? Seriously, you're going to see him in about a year and you're bawling your eyes out because you can't handle separation. Of course, when someone dies, we cry. Of course, we're upset because we want to be with them now. We don't want to wait. Is it better for them? Yeah, but quite frankly, in a selfish way, I wish they were here. Right? I mean, isn't that it? We're just humans, you guys. And so we don't know what to do with that. I can't get a hold of you on my cell and you're not texting me back and I don't We freak out on that. So why wouldn't we freak out on death? We're just not good at it. It's interesting. First Thessalonians 4.13, we already read it. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Listen, I'm not saying that you would be broken hearted that you'll never see them again. I'm just saying that sometimes we cry because we don't want to wait. That's all. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass. I thought, I thought we were saved. We already have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the same way as you've been saved and you are being saved, in the same way, there's a process when we get to see the victory of Jesus. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory. In Hosea 13, 14, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul said, I'll tell you exactly how this works. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. How does that work? The only reason why we worry about death is because we're afraid of rejection. The only reason why death has any power over us is because we know that sin is the thing that leads to death and God doesn't like sin and then he won't maybe like us and we get worried about being rejected by him and he's mad at us and he doesn't like us and that's the stuff that freaks us out. 
if we had absolute guarantee and freedom in our minds where the minute we pass away, Jesus goes, finally, come on, come on, come on, come on, hurry up, right? I've been waiting for you this whole time. If we could let that soak in, then we fear death less. But understand, it's the sin part that makes death such a problem for us. It's that breakdown, it's that separation, it's that frustration. But thanks be to God, our loving, protective God, who gives us, that, that Greek says, keeps on giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Check this verse out, and you'll just have to listen to it. I have it on the screen, Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children, speaking of us, human beings, share in flesh and blood, Jesus, he himself, likewise partook of the same things, became flesh. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let me ask you a question. How did Satan get the power of death? I thought God was in charge of everything. What did he at some point just go, you know what, I'm not going to use this. Satan, you want it? How did Satan get the power of death? It's very simple, very practical. Death comes through sin. Who's the instigator of sin? That's the reason why he has the power of death. God doesn't instigate against himself. God doesn't rebel against his own nature. God doesn't have that. God's not in charge of sin. Satan is. And Satan has sin. Therefore, Satan gets to introduce death. So he can hold that over everybody's head. Look, I got you down. I took down Adam and Eve. It's already in your nature. I got you condemned. And I can hold that over your head at any time. Look at that. I will just condemn you to eternal punishment just like me. I can hold that and I can scare you any time. I can get you to bow down to me, Satan said. Satan held people in lifelong slavery towards fear of death because he had sin on them. Check this out. It says... In Revelation 1:17, John saw Jesus, and Jesus said this, But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. What happened? Smacked Satan down and said, Give me the keys. You don't get those anymore. Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with him in death, like his, when we surrender to ourselves, when we die to ourselves, when like baptism demonstrates how we die and come back up in him as we give our lives over to Jesus and have him in our lives. It says we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. When you became born again, guess what happened to your body? It died. You're no longer accountable for sin. Oh, that's interesting. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. You go, what does that have to do with me? Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, where Satan could hold it over your head. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, set it aside, nailed it to the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You have no sin on you. First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Therefore, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And now there's no more sting of death because sin has been removed for the believer. Satan's got nothing on you. He can't say, hey, you might be condemned because Jesus goes, I already took care of it. He can't hold it over you and go, I don't know about you. Jesus goes, I do know about them and they're fine. They're with me. Leave them alone. Satan no longer has any fear to hang over your head because it's all been taken care of on the cross. There's no fear of rejection. There's no fear of hatred. There's no fear of animosity. Now you know that you will be received in the loving arms of Jesus. And Satan can't scare you anymore. Heaven is for real. John saw this, Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And so Paul concludes. Therefore, my dear beloved brothers, be steadfast, sitting down, settled, be immovable, rock solid and motionless, always abounding and overflowing in the work of the Lord, bearing fruit for the kingdom, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Why? Because we win. Why? Because Jesus saw it. He knows it. And you will be rewarded. Everything is being tracked. All the good stuff. Listen. I get that some of this seems so impossible. But it's so real. We are going to be transformed. And for those of us that trust in Jesus Christ... Our future looks different. I know you're frustrated today. I know you still have limitations in this world. But man, is your future bright. Wow, do you have some things to look forward to. And it's not always going to be like this. And when you feel like giving up, don't you dare. We only have a little while to go. We're on our way. And he's taking care of us. He's not going to abandon us. His love is stronger than our failure. Amen? Amen. Amen.